Hello and welcome to the Innovation Exchange, a bi-weekly podcast about innovation for innovators created by the Portuland Institute. Innovation Exchange amplifies emerging voices, transformative ideas and creative solutions. And today we're going to be diving headfirst into the idea of open innovation. I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Alec Tarkovsky. Alec is the strategy director of the Open Future Foundation, a Europe-based think tank. And for nearly 20 years, he has been a leader of the open movement, having guided strategic processes for creative commons, open education, and digital strategies for societies worldwide. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alec. Hello, thank you for the invitation. So I want to start off our conversation by jumping into a very general question. What does the idea of an open internet really mean? And why does it matter, especially now? I want to start by saying that um, I hope it's a sort of intuitive idea as a lot of things would open. Um, For me, it's a sort of um, tradition of uh, thinking about open and closed societies, systems, and my personal preferences for the open ones. Um, In the case of the internet, it gets kind of complex because this openness can happen at a lot of layers. There's this uh, smart idea of thinking of the internet as a stack of connected services, technologies, infrastructures. And basically, if you look at it, the internet can be open and closed at any of these levels. And importantly, closure at usually even one of them, if it's a significant level or layer of the stack, is a problem. So, you know, um, internet can be closed at the level of the physical infrastructure if it's overly controlled by a single company. It can be closed at the level of um, uh, internet protocols, so sort of the standards that we agree on how internet communication works. And it can be also closed or open um, at the level of services or content. And um, for me, by now, this idea of open internet is, is sort of a... I would say an ideal. I often go back to this um, document drafted by John Perry Barlow, uh, often called one of the sort of founding fathers of um, digital rights. He was the founder, one of the founders of Electronic Frontier Foundation, and he wrote in '96 a document called The Declaration of the Independence of the Internet. It's sort of a very um, over-the-top document, and for a long time I laughed at it. Um, because of that. But currently, I see it as a pretty good manifesto that describes some ideals of a space that's sovereign, um, a space where people have um, all the necessary freedoms and where there is free flows of uh, content, of uh, culture and of knowledge. So what we're fighting for when we talk about the idea of an open internet is openness in terms of protocols, in terms of infrastructure and in terms of content? Well, I think, first of all, maybe it's good that you mentioned this term fight, because indeed, I think uh, we got to a point where we need to fight for this open internet. But there's one other, one more thing that's interesting. I think this term, um, the general attitude towards it changed over time. I think there was a time when speaking about the internet as something open, uh, using the term commons, Um, really sort of um, worked uh, in terms of these very quick connections people make with ideas. Um, And I would say that was, uh, let's say, in the aughts in the first decade of this century. 
Um, this was a time where this idea of open internet was often uh, mentioned in copyright debates. Uh, if the listeners are old enough to remember these times, you know, debates on can you share culture, is uh, sharing files online without permission, stealing, really huge debates, which I think are by now um, sort of over uh, and replaced by completely different debates around basically privacy and data, especially personal data. And I think because of, of this general shift, sometimes this idea of openness gets a bad um, reputation, uh, mainly because um, when you speak about personal data, actually full openness gets quite scary. And this, by the way, maybe we can return to it in a moment, a big challenge for all the proponents of open. Um, but So there's a shifting landscape. But yes, there's there's also a fight for the open internet, which is even more relevant. Um, and it can happen, basically, you can pick your fight. Uh, I actually don't really like the <laughs> military metaphors. I try to avoid them, but they do make sense. Uh, I would rather say, if you look at what activists do, at people who really want to change the um, technology space for better and make good use of technology, you can sort of pick your spot where you apply your talent. People, you know, some people really try to make the infrastructure more open. Um, you know, you can follow debates on things like communicators, uh, where there's a lot of conversation. I guess maybe it's worth adding, uh, we're talking today about open um, it by now, it should probably be bundled with several other terms. I would say I think some other terms that I like are, are trustworthy and just. So uh, if we can agree it's not just open, I think it's easier to have this conversation. So you can, you can talk about things like uh, key uh, communication technologies. I would point at messengers. That's a big debate today. But there's a still very big debate about content, and that's one that's really important for me. Uh, and that I don't think we can lose track of, you know, the discussion, whether we can use the potential of the internet to share knowledge is uh, really still a fundamental one. It's not a debate that finished uh, 10 years ago. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for also giving us an idea of this field. At Portulans, a lot of our work focuses on benchmarking societies that we call future ready. It's clear that openness, knowledge sharing and trustworthiness, like you mentioned, are a key part of this. Can I ask you about your vision for a truly open digital society and how open Internet plays a role in this? I want to start by saying that your question reminds me of research done, I guess, by now, maybe at least 10 years ago. Um, by a researcher uh, who was a member of the Creative Commons community. I'm part of that community. I'm also a proud board member of Creative Commons. And he did an interesting study, as you and maybe the listeners know, Creative Commons has a set of licenses for sharing openly um, content mainly. Um, and uh, this person managed to find some data on what kind of licenses are used in different countries. These licenses vary in terms of how open they are, how much freedoms they give. And he correlated that with data, with some basic um, metrics for uh, democracy and openness of societies. And, and he found a correlation. So you could say that societies that are more willing to share content are also more democratic. It was a very small study, sort of exploratory one, but I really liked it because I think it's, uh, it sort of kind of answers your question. I, I fully believe that there is a connection. Um, first of all, today... Um, basically our societies are intertwined with technology. I don't think uh, we will 
uh, go back to a society that doesn't have the internet um, unless there's some catastrophe. And if that's the case, the sort of structure of this very significant technology, the way how it uh, shapes our ability to talk with each other, to share content, to express ourselves, um, to share data, really affects our societies. This cannot be distinguished. I don't think you can um, today you know, speak that democracy is only about elections and politics. It clearly needs to address the shape um, of this space. What would be my ideal? Um, very quickly, I for a very long time, I would, as this, I would answer three things. You know, first of all, I want resources to be shared as commons. I really believe that's the huge potential of the internet, you know, to equalize access to knowledge, to education, to scientific research, you know, um, so that's very significant. Second, I would say crucial thing is access to technology. So, you know, if we have a major digital divide, this is not an open technological society. It's still dealing with major problems if people just cannot benefit from this technology. Uh, and the third sort of uh, building block would be skills. Um, we can have the most wonderful technology, but if our users are not smart, are not aware of uh, risks, uh, don't know how to use the technology, well, we're not going to get anywhere. So sort of a triangle of three things. But to be honest, about a year ago, uh, this one more issue started sort of uh, nudging me. Um, and the negative way to describe it is disinformation. And I'm not sure what's the uh, positive response to that. The one that seems to be emerging is a discussion about public sphere. Uh, but this language gets a bit sort of vague. But basically, I think um, this is a huge issue for us. And if there was an issue, I hope we all tackle uh, in this coming, in this decade that started, I think, last year. It's nice to measure things, right? 2020, 2030. Um, I think if we don't solve the issue of very broadly understood disinformation, you know, fake news, um, uh, negative communication, uh, dishonest communication, we're going to be in real trouble as societies. It seems like there is no shortage of obstacles to this movement, but there also seems like there's no shortage of opportunities. You mentioned closing digital divides, building digital skills, and equalizing access to knowledge and innovation. Taking this a step further, what's the role of open internet for innovation? Can one happen without the other? I don't think so, though. Um... That's maybe sort of putting too much faith in the internet. Of course, um, you can have um, innovation that's open, that's not happening online. But I think by now, I would say uh, it's sort of very often inspired by the internet. I And what I mean by that, it's sort of copying certain ways of doing things um, that were developed by people collaborating with each other online. Um, for me, the sort of greatest probably example is the very broadly understood Wikimedia community, which by now uh, people should know, and I hopefully do know, this is not just an encyclopedia. There's a lot of projects there. For instance, a very vibrant project called Wikidata that's about uh, sort of doing the same thing with data that Wikipedia did with encyclopedias. So uh, sort of sharing it very broadly. Um, and this is, what I think, the real promise of openness and of sharing Sharing for its own sake is pretty good already. But what you then find out that uh, once content sort of is freely shared, a lot of more people can have a go at doing something amazing with it. And that's basically what I think 
um, innovation is. So I like Wikipedia and Wikimedia ecosystem for the fact that so many people have access to it for free. But what's even more fascinating is that you look anywhere and you see someone uh, doing something very interesting and not needing to ask for permission, not needing to pay fees, just being in a very good environment where they can do either big or incremental innovation happen. Throughout the COVID crisis, it has really become clear that access to the internet and, you know, its innovative potential is not a luxury, it's a lifeline. Why is openness so important for innovation, particularly during the past year? So this is really interesting. I think this is sort of the story, the positive story of the last year is the story of uh, scientific research. And um, if you look at, if, if someone tells this story in detail, it's a story of open access research. You know, it's it's sort of a no-brainer. If you read what happened to um, scientific research uh, on the virus, right, and on means of fighting it, it was just basically from the start open access. People shared the genome, right? They didn't have to sequence it 10 or 100 times. They did it once and shared it online. I was fascinated to learn that the major tool of scientific communication is by now Twitter, right? So people, of course, write articles, uh, but that turned out to be a pretty slow process. So they are able even to debate really serious scientific things in um, 140-character chunks, uh, speaking metaphorically. I find that a really, really powerful story and one that feels sort of taken for granted. I think that's in general a problem with openness. We um, sort of don't realize something is really open. We know we can access it. Uh, we know it's available online, but we don't really know that Wikimedia is a free service. And by that, it means you can freely share it, reuse it and so on. And I think it's a bit the same with the COVID story. I don't think we... Uh, really uh, pay attention to how amazing a feat of sort of global collaborative um, research um, this was. Uh, Creative Commons, which I already mentioned, uh, was one of the initiators of a project called Open COVID Pledge, which sort of uh, added one more piece to the puzzle. It's a project that encourages uh, entities that hold patents, usually large companies, but maybe also startups with some very novel um, patents, to share them for the purpose of fighting uh, the pandemic. Um, and I think that that for me was a very interesting project, which I felt really tackles head on the, the, the challenge uh, of the given moment. And once again, proves that, um, that this is really significant. If I can just quickly add, um, the only thing I would wish for is that some sense of openness um, was uh, visible in, in the current phase of fighting the pandemic where we're dealing with vaccines, which are uh, developed by big corporations, usually receiving very huge public funding. And that's a moment where I like to say, if publicly funded, it should be publicly shared. Um, and I don't mean handing out the vaccine for free, but really treating it as a public good. That would really be a fantastic sort of outcome that we are not unfortunately seeing. Um, where maybe, um, you know, there was a bit of a different approach than the one I see right now, where it feels it's this traditional corporate model of, uh, of the pharma business, where uh, the company is now controlling intellectual property uh, and selling it to buyers. I would prefer to see some kind of a commons around the vaccines. 
it's so increasingly clear, particularly after the, after the challenges of the past year, that openness and collaboration is critical. Speaking of this, can you tell us a little about your work at the Open Future Foundation? Yes, yeah, so we're uh, we just launched. <laughs> um, we we launched with the beginning of the year. Uh, it's a very interesting moment to launch. We're sort of uh, launching uh, in these very unusual but also very interesting times. Uh, we're a remote organization, so thinking a lot uh, what it means to function a society that is even more remote than usual uh, because of the pandemic. And our sort of big mission is we think ourselves as the think tank for the open movement. So we really want to add um, a capacity to do strategic thinking, to understand better the environment, the digital environment, to other organizations and activists that work uh, to support openness um, and the digital commons. And um, uh, we're focused on Europe uh, because that's where we're based, but we believe that Europe can um, develop a good model for uh, regulating technology that will benefit not just Europe, but the globe. So that's our sort of our explanation of our position. We really think Europe can lead here and we want to contribute to this. There's uh, So this is our other point of reference. One is the open movement, another is the policy debate happening, so to say, in Brussels, where we hope that in the coming years, um, there will be really interesting thought put into policies that will create, as I discussed, things that are more open, just, or trustworthy. Uh, we have this one motto that we uh, like to think about and talk about. We say that our, really, our work is really not with the current European Commission, but with the one coming up in five years. That's sort of our way of uh, placing ourselves in the future. Uh, as you can imagine from the name of the organization, we really want to be um, forward-looking. Uh, and maybe one more thing I want to add, because we're talking so much today about openness. It's a value that's really, really important both for me uh, and my partner and co-director, Paul Keller. Uh, we've been in the open movement for a really long time, but we also feel that um, this movement, this idea that has been really strongly launched around 20 years ago, uh, right now deserves sort of rethinking. Some issues need to be uh, reconceptualized. The goals maybe need to be defined anew. We should be aware of challenges to openness, which we men I mentioned a bit in our call. So we also see ourselves as part of that mission. You know, we might be by now sort of old timers, uh, but ones with a need to really uh, have a fresh um, and futures and forward-looking uh, approach to open. From our conversation, I get the sense that innovation and constantly looking forward, looking to improve is really at the heart of the open movement. Alec, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate our conversation. You can learn more about Alec at creativecommons.org and learn more about the Open Future Foundation at openfuture.eu. Next time, I interview Heather Joseph, Executive Director of Spark, about why open access innovation is more important than ever. <laughs>